Leaving Afghanistan, reflections as we wind down the longest war in U.S. history. Sabotage at a nuclear facility in Iran as the U.S. Defense Secretary visits Israel. All that and our special guest this week, first-term U.S. Representative Kathy Manning of North Carolina. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. And welcome back to episode 11 of Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Uh, Jared, a happy Yom Ha'atzma'ut that has passed uh, to you. Indeed, indeed. It is uh, always a great time to celebrate the independence or the re-independence of the Jewish homeland and home to all Jewish people. And to recommit ourselves to the U.S.-Israel relationship, a wonderful holiday to uh, to mark. And we look forward to the next uh, holiday to come, Lagba Omer. Big news this week. Uh, President Biden has announced that all U.S. troops will be leaving Afghanistan by September 11th, 2021, the 20th anniversary of the terrorist attacks. Rich, you served in Afghanistan. Thoughts on this announcement? This is a very difficult one, obviously, uh, to separate your emotions from your intellect on. Uh, and for me, having served there, knowing a lot of people who served a lot longer there than I did, uh, it, it's difficult because we sacrifice so much as a country, treasure and blood to ensure that we never had another 9-11. The, the idea that we were playing away games so that we never had to play home games. Uh, and we haven't had another 9-11 truly since then. And the worry, of course, is the Taliban, we know who they are. They're still ideologically the Taliban of all uh, the likelihood of the Kabul government to fall the minute we leave is high. Uh, the possibility of terrorist groups reorganizing within Afghanistan if we're not there is high. And so we should be real clear eyed on the coming threats uh, from Afghanistan over the long term after we leave. At the same time, the frustration that you would see the missions in Afghanistan when I was there in 2011, and you'd hear people who were there at different times over 20 years, it's the same missions over and over again, the targets just keep changing. And so there is this frustration you have to, to deal with of where are we going there? How will this ever end? Uh, and so uh, emotionally difficult to see. I, I wish we were not pulling out on September 11th. I think that that's a bad anniversary to do. I understand the political symbolism in America, but we should also remember that has political symbolism for Al Qaeda uh, and the Taliban as well. Yeah, you know, coming from a congressional district and a neighborhood with an incredibly high body count from the September 11th attacks and being in New York on September 11th, 2001, um, you just wish that there was a way to win to end this threat for all time to this country. And I just don't know that we've figured that out yet. And there are some who would argue that we are winning by by being there and ensuring that we don't have another 9-11. And, and that's a difficult case politically to sell. Uh, it takes uh, a little bit too long uh, in an academic journal to, to explain, but um, we'll, we'll see how this, uh, this all turns out. But listen, we have a lot of other big news to get to. Uh, they're one of the biggest news of the week, and look forward to, to asking uh, our guests coming up, uh, is the sabotage, apparent sabotage attack uh, by what we assume is Israel, uh, the Mossad, uh, inside an Iranian 
Pakistani nuclear facility, the Natanz enrichment facility uh, had an explosion of some kind. First was uh, supposedly a cyber attack. Then we learned there might have been explosives involved. And it happened uh, just as uh, the Secretary of Defense, General Austin, was arriving for his first visit to Israel. Overview of that uh, trip, pretty good. Um, overall, recommitment to the U.S. as a relationship, uh, visits to see U.S. troops who are in Israel, uh, trading of gifts uh, between himself uh, and uh, Benny Gantz. Uh, it w- was wonderful to see the statement from the secretary that the U.S.'s relationship remains ironclad. This seems to be the word that the Biden administration has adopted uh, for its term in office. At the same time, no mention of Iran by the secretary while he was there. You know, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, Gantz, others uh, brought up Iran several times in the open press interactions. Uh, the secretary did not mention Iran. And so don't know exactly what was going on there. Did the U.S. know about the attack on the Tons? Were they caught by surprise? This is all playing out, of course, as negotiations in Vienna over whether or not to go back into the nuclear deal. Uh, come through as well. Jared, uh, thoughts on the visit, um, thoughts on if we should read into the fact that Secretary Austin didn't say anything uh, about Iran during the visit. I think overall, the the visit's good news. Uh, I think it shows us what the Biden administration is going to be about, which is quiet collaboration with our allies, disagreements that don't bubble up in public. And in terms of the secretary not mentioning Iran while he was there, I think the sheer fact that he was there while we were negotiating with Iran in Vienna uh, is not coincidental at all. I think that the sheer fact of him being there and demonstrating the military-to-military relationship between the United States and Israel uh, was a not-so-subtle way of reminding the Iranian government of that relationship and the closeness of that relationship and, if need be, the able to jointly execute uh, operations as part of that relationship. So I didn't think the secretary had to say anything. Um, He just had to be there. And in terms of whether he knew or didn't know, I think he has a great poker face. And either way, it's great. Obviously, you would rather be consulted than not. But it sort of doesn't matter. Yeah, two two comments to close this out. One is, uh, I agree with you. I think Secretary Austin, the fact that he did not comment on Natanz, particularly if the U.S. had not been informed of it before it happened, uh, probably took a, a lot for him not to comment, especially if you imagine Rob Malley, the uh, special envoy for Iran in Vienna right now, calling, screaming, this is outrageous. The Iranians think we're behind this. You need to say something. And for the Secretary of Defense to say, no, I'm not going to undermine our ally while I'm here uh, is actually rather commendable if, if that's how it played out. At the same time, though, disappointing that Mr. Malley uh, in Vienna does not seem to have understood that this Israeli attack gave him a lot of leverage at the negotiating table. They're still proceeding on pace to go back into the nuclear deal, lift terrorism, sanctions, etc. We'll ask our guest about that, but I just wish that they would read the latest data that came out uh, over the last few days from the International Monetary Fund. Iran down to $4 billion of accessible foreign exchange reserves by the end of 2020. In my view, maximum pressure was working. And now there's a setback to the nuclear program. Time to take a little step back from the negotiating table and realize you have a lot of leverage. And I think we'll leave it there, Jared. We could talk about this for hours, uh, but we won't. We have a special guest. So without further ado, Jared, uh, why don't you introduce us?
Congresswoman Kathy Manning, thanks so much for joining us. It is my pleasure. It's great to have you here. Uh, if we could start with the issue of Iran. Big news this week, apparently a sabotage attack by Israel on the n- nuclear facility in Natanz, according to intelligence officials. It set back uh, work there by at least nine months. And is, do we think this is a good thing? Well, we certainly don't want Iran to get a nuclear weapon. I think the way to solve that problem long term is probably through diplomatic channels. And I'll leave it at that. So so I guess that's a perfect segue to my follow-up question. And, and Rich, by the way, is the Iran expert here, so I'm sure he'll have more smarter things to say. But does, a, a, does this attack complicate the talks in Vienna that are ongoing or not? You know, I, I, I don't really know. Uh, I mean, look, the I don't know how those talks could get more complicated than they already are. We've got the U.S. trying to get into a deal that um, it got out of saying they could get a better deal, and that certainly hasn't happened. We've got our allies trying to decide, can they trust us moving forward? We've got a um, president who wants to change the trajectory of the last president who did such an extraordinary job of uh, alienating so many of our allies. And it's important for us to uh, rebuild those relationships that have been important to the United States for, frankly, for generations. Uh, We've got Israel that is understandably always concerned about Iran because Iran has uh, stated that uh, Israel needs to be destroyed. So we can understand why Israel is concerned. And we know that Iran has has not maintained in compliance with the JCPOA. So I think you've already got uh, negotiations that are about as complicated as they can get. Let me add one more piece of this. I think in our new Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, we have someone who is the consummate professional. He understands Iran. He understands Israel. Frankly, his knowledge of the the world is extraordinary, and I believe that he has the right um, the right goals and also the right instincts. So we had an opportunity on the Foreign Affairs Committee to take testimony from him, and he was slated to stay for two hours. He was kind enough to uh, expand that to four hours so that each one of us could ask our questions. And uh, he he was just fabulous in the way he responded. So, and particularly on the Iran issue, he understood that um, we're looking for a deal that is longer, stronger, and broader. And I believe that he uh, endorses that. So just to follow up there, I know you had given an interview, I think back in February, uh, where you know you came out sort of opposed to going back to the old deal um, that, you know, the broad strokes sort of outline of this longer, broader deal seems like something both sides of the aisle now agree on. The question is, should we go back to the old deal first? That seems to be sort of a point of disagreement. Do you still sort of take that tougher line of, you know, we, we shouldn't go back to the old deal. We should at least use the leverage we have here to, to get that better deal first? I don't understand how you can go back to a deal that was put into place under different circumstances uh, many years ago. Some of the um, sunset provisions have already expired. We no longer have the um, arms embargo at the UN. We we were hoping that being in the deal would cause Iran to curb its bad behavior and perhaps even... Um, 
cease from some of its malign behavior in fostering terrorism around the globe. And what we've seen is that they've done exactly the opposite. We also see that when faced with real economic um, uh, trouble for its own people, rather than use their resources to, to, to take care of their own people, they are using that money to continue to foster and support terrorists around the world. So when you think about all those, all those things that have changed or that we've learned from since when the deal was put into place, I don't even understand how you can say, let's get back into the same deal. We're not in the same world today. So, Congresswoman, uh, that makes total sense. I guess my question is, do you think that the Biden team negotiating this gets that? Um, and Absolutely. Absolutely. And you don't think that they're sort of too wedded to either emotionally or otherwise to a deal that many of them had a key role in negotiating. You think that they, they can move on uh, to something better and broader. I think we have extraordinarily smart professionals involved in the Biden team. They understand what it took to get the deal last time. They've seen far more clearly than I have what has taken place since then, and I think they're—I uh, think that they understand what what their task is, and it is truly a difficult task. You know, you, you talk about the consummate professional in, in Secretary Blinken, and you know, for those of us who are Capitol Hill veterans, we knew him as, as a staffer, and, and absolutely always has been the consummate professional. One of the things that I was struck by back during his confirmation hearing, he was asked very uh, bluntly, you know, will you keep terrorism sanctions on Iran no matter what you do with the JCPOA? And specifically, a lot of those big ticket items that were given away originally in sanctions relief under nuclear sanctions now under terrorism sanctions, Central Bank of Iran, the oil company, et cetera. And he was very clear, you know, that would not be in the U.S. interest to lift those sanctions. They're not inconsistent with the JCPOA, which would be a very strong position. Do you do you support that? Do you think that those any sanctions tied to terrorism should be left in place at the bargaining table? I do support that. And, I, and I'll tell you that my frustration at that hearing was that because I'm a new member, I'm so low down on the totem pole, I didn't get my, to ask my questions about Iran until they'd already been asked about six times. So all I could say was, thank you, Mr. Secretary, for your repeated and emphatic confirmation that you are devoted to a deal that would be longer, stronger, and broader with Iran. One of your colleagues, Betty McCollum, this week announced she would be reintroducing legislation to condition aid to Israel on a number of criteria. Uh, it sounds like this is going to set up an appropriations fight. Uh, I guess the first question is, do you support conditioning aid to Israel on, on any condition? No, I do not. When you think about all the other countries uh, with malign behavior that we give aid to, why would we single out Israel, which, by the way, is certainly our strongest and most reliable ally in the Middle East, but frankly, one of our strongest allies overall. And this is something, you know, Jared and I talk about a lot on the show. And, and obviously, I, I'm not a Democrat, so I think it's harder for me to put myself in the shoe. But, I, but I'm somebody who worked across the aisle, you know, a lot of bipartisan work on Israel for many years when I was a staffer on Capitol Hill. Do you sort of see this divide inside the Democratic caucus right now that, that a lot of people have talked about? You know, there's some who would support the McCollum legislation, some who wouldn't. Uh, how do you as, as a pro-Israel Democrat sort of come to that conversation inside the Democratic caucus? Well, let's just say I'm not the only pro-Israel Democrat. I have found lots of friends uh, since I got here who share my views. 
and uh, and not just friends in the in the of the among the Jewish members. Lots of friends uh, in the Democratic Party who who are strong supporters of Israel, and I. I hope that her bill doesn't get traction. So let's just uh, move on to another uh, issue here. Your vice chair, I believe, of Middle East Subcommittee of Foreign Affairs, a great subcommittee. Um, h- how do you see the region today in the wake of the Abraham Accords? You know, just your, your, your 30,000 foot view of, of the Middle East today. The best of times, the worst of times. Is that is that a, a I wish it were original. Um, we had a hearing yesterday on Syria. And when you get into the details of what has happened over the past 10 years in Syria, what a possible resolution could be, it's extraordinarily complicated. And the fact that we have Iran trying to get a foothold there, that we have Russia establishing a foothold there, it adds a new uh, dimension to, to the region. Uh, and, you know, Russia won't give up easily because it really wants to wants to be there. Uh, On the other hand, I think the Abraham Accords are incredibly, um, uh, give us hope that when we, somebody corrected me the other day when I said Israel lives in a dangerous neighborhood and somebody said, well, it's not quite as dangerous as it used to be, is it? I hope that's correct. I think that the Abraham Accords certainly have been in the works for many years. And I think it is a demonstration of the fact that there are uh, countries in the region that see Israel uh, as as a model. It's got a thriving economy with extraordinary innovation, and it's a country that uh, that Arab countries want to be want to be trading partners with. And the thing that I think is so exciting about, particularly the accord with the UAE. Look, we all know that the uh, the peace treaty with Egypt was uh, with Jordan has been described as a, a, a lukewarm uh, peace treaty. With Egypt is a cold peace treaty, but the the agreement with the accord with the UAE is uh, is exciting because, from what I understand, you can't even get a flight to Dubai because there's so much uh, there's so much action going on and such excitement about having a real relationship between the two countries. I hope we see that uh, growing. And I think that is uh, is really an exciting change for Israel. So in your sort of conversations and briefings, who do you think is the next country to sort of sign on to the Abrahamic Accords? I have no inside information on that. And uh, I, I really don't know. Uh, I think you you know talk to talk to Mr. Netanyahu about that one. I mean he's invited on the show. We've said it many times. Uh we're still waiting for a call back. <laughs> he does have a few things on his plate. He may have a he may have another election to deal with so he's he's very busy. He's very busy. There have been concerns, you know, early on there was the pause uh by the incoming administration, now the new administration uh on the F35 sale to UAE. There's obviously been some tension with Saudi Arabia that a lot of people have sort of looked at as sort of you know who's managing the pieces here in the Gulf and potentially themselves going next on on normalization. There's there's you know what's going to happen with JCPOA. Are we tilting back towards Iran or not? Do, do you see any of these like potentially jeopardizing forward movement on Abraham Accords? Not necessarily. I think um, 
I think that that multiple things can can be going on at the same time. We can still make progress on things like that. And look, I, I, not only do we have the consummate professional and Secretary Blinken, uh, President Biden has been dealing with these issues for uh, longer than both of you have been alive, I suspect. Uh, he understands the region. Um, he uh, he knows the players. He also knows the players in Congress and in the Senate in particular. So I, I think we have a, a, the, the right man in the job right now. Congresswoman, you know, uh, in this past election, we saw the departure of two of the longest tenured pro-Israel Democrats, Anita Lowy and Elliot Engel. Do you see yourself heir to that role or, or uh, as a strong, vocal pro-Israel Democrat? I could never fill the shoes of either of those two individuals, but I am a strong pro-Israel Democrat and I'm not shy about it. Uh, and I will, I will stand up for Israel because, and I also will stand up for the U.S.-Israel relationship. I will also stand up against anti-Semitism. We haven't even touched on that, um, and and that is something that's that's worrisome, separate and apart from attitudes toward Israel. We're seeing a growth of global anti-Semitism, a growth of anti-Semitism in this country. And we haven't talked about the growth of the or the exposure of the white supremacist movement, which is not uh, which is part and parcel of the growth of anti-Semitism, but not the exclusive group that, that's worrisome. Congresswoman, I know Rich is really happy to, with all that you're saying, as am I. Uh, we talk a lot on this show about anti-Semitism, both on the left and on the right. Um, wondered if you could kind of talk a little bit more about that, how you see it, what do you think we should be doing to confront it, and where do we go from here? Well, one of the questions we asked Secretary Blinken was to see, see a role for the United States in confronting global anti-Semitism and the, the global white supremacist movement. And he said, absolutely. And he gave a, a comment. He didn't say, he, I think he said, that's something that is deep in me. I, what I heard was it's in my kishkis, but I know for certain he didn't use that word in the hearing, but that's what I heard when he was speaking. So can we, can we mark that down as favorite Yiddish word for you? Just, just so we get that out of the way. We always ask that kish, question. I, 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 I like, I like kishkis. I, I think I, first of all, I like to eat kishkis, but I also like being in my kishkis. But I yeah. think mahatonum is the, is my favorite because there is <laughs> no English equivalent. And when you try to describe what that word is to non-Jews, they first, they get confused and then they say, well, why don't we have a word for that? Uh, it so, Congresswoman, you, sh you should know that was also the favorite Yiddish word of Eric Cantor when he was on this podcast. Um, so, he, so we have something in common. Yeah, there yeah. So there we go. It's very true. <laughs> we can get uh, Representative Manning and Eric Cantor to agree on something. We're doing something for the dialogue here. This is what we do here on the podcast. Just to transition, um, uh, first of all, if you wanted to go on an anti-Semitism, I didn't mean to, to cut you off. No, no, no. Look, how do you confront anti-Semitism? You know, I don't have the answer for that. The answer can't be one anti-Semite at a time. It would take way too long. Um, but we need to expose the issue. We need to make sure that we talk about it on a regular basis. And we need to build alliances. And uh, it can't just be Jews talking about anti-Semitism. We have to be talking about all the uh, discrimination and hate that was frankly unleashed by the prior administration. 
It's not that it didn't exist before, it was kept undercover. Uh, but the prior administration and, the, and President Trump with his incendiary language made it acceptable for people to say things that had not been said as much in public. And I think when you open Pandora's box, it's, it's difficult to get that lid back on. One last policy question uh, on UNRWA. I believe the administration very recently announced it was going to restart aid uh, to the UN uh, Relief and Works Agency uh, in uh, West Bank, Gaza, uh, elsewhere. Uh, a lot of controversy there, obviously. We can get into it. But uh, overall, do you support restarting the aid to UNRWA? Actually, I, have, I am going to be leading uh, and getting my colleagues to sign on to a letter um, to the Secretary General of the United Nations objecting to um, using funds for the kinds of textbooks that we know they continue to promise not to use, and yet they continue to use textbooks that are um, uh, filled with incendiary uh, anti-Semitic comments and language and anti-Israel um, teachings. And it's, it, I believe that's got to stop. And in this moment, when there is such attention focused on discrimination of all types, I think this is the moment to step up to this issue as well. And if they refuse, if they don't, if the evidence is that those textbooks continue to be used, would you support some sort of conditioning of USAID at that point? We will uh, we'll, we'll get to that issue when we see what happens. I'm certainly hoping that a broad letter from um, Congress people who are deeply concerned about this could perhaps result in some change. I'm optimistic. I've only been here 103 days, so I still think we can actually do things. Not that I'm counting. <laughs> I'm very warped on that issue. Don't worry. I'm very, I have battle wounds from, from fighting under for many years. Don't worry. So, Congresswoman, shifting gears a hair here, um, we were wondering, so you were the first woman to chair the board at JFNA, and being honest is... This is a safe space. What's worse in terms of politics and infighting, Jewish Federation or Capitol Hill? Let me say that my experience with JFNA and the organized Jewish world prepared me for uh, Congress, prepared me quite well. And I absolutely loved the work I did at JFNA. I I was so privileged to be able to be in a leadership position in that extraordinary organization. Just, and I, I hated to give up the job because it was we had we were able to have such an impact. Um, but as we all know, uh, when I chaired a board of what 133 people, each of whom had three ideas or three opinions on every issue, usually conflicting opinions, um, that prepared me well for Congress. I have to say the other thing my work at JFNA prepared me for, and I've said this in other settings, was the insurrection. Because when I was in the House gallery when the insurrection took place, because I wanted that we couldn't all be on the House floor because of um, uh, COVID restrictions. And I actually wanted to be there to hear Jamie Raskin speak uh, because I thought it was so extraordinary that he left his Shiva house after the most horrifying thing that a parent could have to go through and came to speak on the certification of the election because he thought it was so important. So I wanted to be there to watch that. Side note, my family has now discovered that Jamie and I are maybe fourth cousins. 
So, uh, what, you know, it is a very small world. But I, so I was sitting in the, in the House gallery when the insurrection took place. And when they, all the commotion started, they told us to take out the gas masks. Because I was in the gallery, we were the last group that was taken to safety. And when they finally got us to the other side of the gallery, they told us to get down on the floor, take off our member pins so that they couldn't identify us if they, uh, if the insurrectionists broke into the doors. And then there was just quiet while we all sat and waited. And I thought to myself, I've been through much worse. I've had to run to bomb shelters in Sidero when you could actually hear uh, sirens going off and the, the rockets coming over. And, you know, I laugh about that, but I seriously thought about that and thought, okay, I've, I've been prepared for this. I've been through worse. Uh, I didn't know that that was going to be preparation for being in Congress. Uh, and of course, at the time, we couldn't see what was going on outside the building, nor could we have ever imagined what was going on outside. But I think my work in the Jewish world prepared me well. Sort of looking at the other way around, is there something now that you're a member of Congress that you've said, wow, if, if, if only I had known that when I was a lay leader in JFNA, like what, what would, for those lay leaders out there that are interacting with members, what's like a lesson learned already that you would say, hmm. You got, you know, y'all should know this. I'll be honest with you. I, I think JFNA gets it right so much of the time. Um, they they know how to advocate for things that are important to the community. Uh, they know how to get a nationwide network to move in the same direction. I, I, I you know, I, I have not confronted anything yet where I say, "Gee, I wish I had done this differently." When I when I was at JFNA, I'm sure something will crop up in the future, but, but I, I haven't experienced, I haven't experienced it yet. Come back to me in another hundred days and I'll, I'll have learned more. So before we uh, go to just a, a lighthearted lightning round question, uh, we're going to have to figure something else out. We already know your favorite Yiddish word. I've been thinking about the conversation we had earlier on Iran and, and I just wanted one more Iran question for you, if that's okay. And it's, uh, you know, let's say, Everything that we expect, that you expect the administration to do doesn't happen. Let's say for some reason they do go back into JCPOA, they lift the sanctions, they lift terrorism sanctions. You know, you seem confident that won't happen. If it does, does Congress have a role there to play, to step up and say, we're worried about this? And could there be legislation at that point? Absolutely. But I hope we, I hope we don't get to that point. And I shouldn't answer, I shouldn't answer, I shouldn't answer hypotheticals. Uh, but I'm still not, you know, when, when you're trained as a lawyer, you're trained to answer questions directly. I haven't unlearned that yet, which is a disadvantage. No, that, that, that's the perfect answer. It's great. CJ Craig getting asked on the West Wing. Do you know what time it is? Yes. Um, so, Congresswoman, uh, we normally ask for your favorite Yiddish word or phrase, but you already gave us machatanam, which is fantastic. The question, one of the other ones we like to ask is, what are you reading or do you have a book recommendation of something you've read recently uh, or something you've read a while ago that you could share with our readers? What am I reading that's not one of the... Four not one of the thousand briefing books you have. Yeah. Not a briefing not a paper. And not the newspaper. I mean, and it could be a work of fiction. It could be a, a Billy Boyle mystery. Uh, don't don't overthink it. Just it could be a, whatever. A biography, favorite biography. You know, I I, I am reading uh, a biography that one of my colleagues, David Price, wrote, and he is the dean of our North Carolina delegation, and I've known him for many many years. 
but I didn't know about his background. And when we were on the House floor voting one night, he said, oh, I brought you a copy of this. I've, I've just redone my biography. And I started reading it. Of course, I've only gotten through the first two chapters because there's there are a few other things on my desk, but it's actually very interesting and really well done. And I'm learning all kinds of things about my colleague that I didn't know before. You know, it sounds like a fifth grade project or something, but in these times, these partisan times, it might actually be fun for members of Congress to like do biographies on each other to learn about each other more because it, it, you never know. Representative Kathy Manning, thank you so much for joining us. We hope to have you back soon. Uh, and, you know, thanks for all the work that you're doing on all these really important issues. Uh, happy to have you on the podcast anytime. My pleasure. And just being with you makes me for Clemson. Oh, so that's another thrown one. in one more you're making, you're, just, There you you're go. Making me we got two for one. Unbelievable. All right. <laughs> thank you, Congresswoman. <laughs> All right. Shabbat shalom. shalom. Thank you. Shabbat shalom. And I got the hopper in hand. Yeah. Recoup when the beast moves. Sixteens on a sweet tune. And Jared, that was a great conversation uh, with Congresswoman Manning. Just, uh, I think, uplifting for this podcast because here's somebody who is very forthright in their support for the U.S. as a relationship, um, able to call out, you know. Uh, balls and strikes, a lot of criticism wherever it's warranted uh, and wants to work across the aisle on these issues. Yeah. And it, I think it's important to hear those strong pro-Israel voices in the Democratic Party, especially in the House, where there is sometimes a back and forth, a couple of fringe members. And it's great to know that people like Representative Manning are out there speaking up for the pro-Israel relationship and calling out those who would go in a different direction. All right, Jared, I know you like to switch gears a lot uh, during the show. So we're going to switch into into like seventh year if that's possible on this machine uh if you have any comments questions show ideas tips send us an email at podcast at jewishinsider.com also please come follow us on clubhouse when we're there and twitter at ji podcast remember to follow subscribe to limited liability podcasts on your podcast listening medium of choice until next time this is the limited liability podcast thanks for listening Yeah. yeah.